be very thankful to the Lord because it was uh, eight years ago tomorrow that West Houston Bible Church got started, and the Lord has faithfully provided for us over the last eight years in a number of different ways and provided a tremendous facility for us here and many other things over that uh, course of time for which we are very, very, uh, very, very grateful, very thankful. And so uh, we look forward to the next eight years and beyond. And a reminder that this weekend we will be having our uh, spring picnic. Hope to see all of you out there. It's a great time for uh, everyone to get together, relax, have some fun together, uh, play some volleyball, croquet, or whatever the other games are that we have, eat some good food because, as we all know, there's a few good cooks around here. And it's a great time to spend that time uh, just getting to know other people in the body of Christ. So uh, look forward to seeing you on Saturday. Be out there at, um, there's a sign-up sheet still, I think, out in the fellowship hall. And the picnic starts about 12 noon on, on Saturday. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a lamp unto my path, lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. We need to make sure that we're in fellowship, because only when we are in fellowship. Uh, are we able to walk by the Spirit? And when we're walking by the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit is the one who fills us with His Word, helps us to understand His Word, stores it in our souls so that we can then uh, recall it uh, for application and um, utilize it. The Holy Spirit utilizes it for our spiritual growth and spiritual strength. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we have this opportunity to relax and focus on your word this evening, that we might be refreshed and and that as we study your word, we might come to a greater understanding of who you are, of your oversight of history, how you worked through the ages to bring about your plan and your purpose, and that even though we are studying about the uh, sort of the macro purpose that you have in history as every believer fits within that purpose, we know that each believer has a has a place, each believer has a role, each believer has a plan, and that just as we see you work in the uh, large panorama of history, we know that you work in the same way in the details of our lives. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word, we might be strengthened, encouraged, and as we face the various challenges and the various difficulties and the various tests in our life, that we might be reminded that you are uh, the faithful God who's just as you were faithful to Abraham and to Moses uh, down through the centuries and to Stephen and those in the early church. So you are just as faithful to us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles again to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Now, last time, uh, we went through the entire chapter so that we would have this overview. Uh, Acts 7, if you were to sit down and read Stephen's uh, defense, which is actually not a defense, it is actually a prosecutorial indictment of the Sanhedrin, it would take, if you read it slowly with effect and... uh, uh, dramatically as it would have been given, then it will take you about six to seven minutes to read through it. So if it only took him six, seven minutes, at most ten minutes to make this this uh, statement, then when we take time to look at something of this nature, I think it's good for us to go through the entirety of it as it was originally given at one sitting and to understand it in its entirety in its whole as to how 
uh, as to what Stephen was accomplishing and what it was that he was saying. As I pointed out last time, he's responding to an indictment, an indictment that said that he had blasphemed God and Moses and that he had also blasphemed the temple and Torah. And because he was a blasphemer, these false witnesses had come forward and were making these accusations. And now he gets his, gives his defense in chapter 7 uh, as the high priest, who is the same high priest that challenged Jesus. So this is almost a reenactment of the trial of Jesus. And, it's, and there are a lot of parallels that are brought out for that very reason, because it is uh, about two years or maybe three years after the uh, crucifixion of Christ, and it is if God is giving the Jewish leadership a second chance. If you think about the structure of Acts and what we have seen, there was a, a, a sermon by Peter on the day of Pentecost which challenged the nation to repent, a term that, as we pointed out when we went through there, goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, to turn back to God. Again, in Peter's message in Acts chapter 3, after he had healed the lame man outside the temple, again he challenged the nation uh, to repent, and again uh, they failed to do that. And then he is arrested by the Sanhedrin, he and John, and they were uh, uh, they were uh, accosted by the Sanhedrin, but they didn't physically abuse them. They were just threatened. And later they are arrested again, then they are beaten, and then uh, now as a result of what uh, Stephen says, a persecution will arise. So we see the intensification of opposition and hostility toward the uh, Christians, those who have accepted uh, Jesus as Messiah. Uh, during this time, so it has a very important role because it, as in, in Peter's first message, he challenges them to repent. In his second message, he challenges them to repent. This is a major theme in the subsequent messages of the apostles in chapter that we're told about in chapter uh, five, and so uh, now this sort of uh, is going to crystallize the negative volition of the Sanhedrin, their hostility to Christ. And so it is not, it, as I pointed out last time, it's one of the longest, it is the longest um, sermon in Acts, and it is the only sermon in Acts that does not have the gospel in it because its point is a message, an indictment of condemnation to the Sanhedrin for their rejection of not just the Messiah, but for their constant rejection of, of God. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Stephen points out that they have uh, they have not had respect for the Torah. They have not had respect for the temple because over the years of the Jewish history, they have even brought uh, idols uh, from the other nations in and set them up in the temple. They have been disrespectful of Moses, for they have not obeyed him. And ultimately, all of this reveals that they have been blasphemous of God, and they have violated uh, God's commandments to worship him and him alone uh, again and again and again down through, uh, down through their history. And so he brings this to a conclusion, and this just creates a, 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 an intense firestorm of, of reaction against him, and they haul him down, throw him off the cliff down at the precipice by the temple, and then stone him to death. So we covered that last time. Today I want to go back and look at some four or five details within Stephen's message that are important for us to pay a little more attention to. I, th I know I've had this experience. I'm sure many of you have also had this experience where you've sat down and you have uh, been in the process of giving the gospel, explaining the gospel uh, to an unbeliever. And you have been challenged by the unbeliever with the question, how can you really believe the Bible is God's word? I mean, there's so many mistakes in the Bible. There's so many changes in the Bible. There's so many contradictions in the Bible. How can you really believe it? And, and uh, I learned over the years to respond with a question, usually, uh, oh, really, can you point out uh, a contradiction or two? And we'll talk about it and call their bluff because many times they've just heard things on, 
Discovery Channel or History Channel or read something somewhere or heard somebody say that and they thought it sounded good. But every now and then you have somebody who may know one thing or another or you may be reading in some book somewhere and somebody makes a claim and one of the chapters they'll go to to show that there are discrepancies or contradictions in the scripture is Acts chapter 7 and there are about three places in Acts 7 that are usually uh, brought out as some sort of evidence that there's contradictions uh, in the scripture. Before we get to that, we need to review briefly our definitions on the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. Those of you who've caught the first part of the Jude series, I believe that uh, you're in the middle of the doctrine of uh, inerrancy and inspiration right now. And then when I'm gone in May and again in June, when I'm gone to Israel, you'll complete that and go into some other material. But the basic uh, definitions I have up on the screen, definition of inspiration is based on the Greek noun theopneustos. And theopneustos is from a compound noun coined by the Apostle Paul. Not It doesn't mean inspire. We use the English word inspire to communicate uh, someone who has had just a remarkable insight into something or they are able to reach heights of genius in art or music or something of that nature. But what inspiration, the English word inspiration translates is a word that means that God breathed out the scriptures. He, it, its ultimate source is in God himself. He breathes it out from his person and he breathes it into the mind or soul of the, of the individual writer of Scripture. And that individual writer of Scripture then exhales that, as it were, into the Scripture using a breathing metaphor to describe this process of, uh, of the writing of Scripture and God's work in and through the writer of Scripture to guarantee that what the writer of Scripture put down on the papyrus was exactly what God intended and would be without error in any area that it addressed, whether it was speaking of geography or whether it was speaking of history or speaking about observation, uh, observations in the creation, that whatever the writer uh, penned would be without error. Now, that only applies to the original manuscripts. A lot of people uh, who have not been taught well are suddenly shocked when they learn that. I remember just a few weeks ago when uh, Ron Minton was here, and he was teaching on, the, on textual criticism and the origin and transmission of the Scripture, that during the time that he was here, he taught in an independent Baptist church down in uh, uh, Pasadena somewhere. And he returned, and he commented to me, he said, he just shook his head and said, I, I, a lot of evangelicals don't know much about their Bible, but this group really didn't know much about their Bible. And that's a extremely sad commentary on today. I'm not picking on that particular church. I am using it as an example because it is it really is uh, <clears throat> uh, typical of evangelicals today. They know very little about their Bible. They know very little about what they believe or why they believe it. And they don't, uh, in many cases, they don't know anything about its origin or transmission. They almost have a, a, a just this superstitious view of the text. And, um, of course, there's always those who are over in the crazy King James-only crowd uh, who think that the uh, actually the King James Version in the English was inspired by God. And if the King James was good enough for the Apostle Paul, well, it's good enough for us. And we laugh and chuckle at that, but there are people who actually truly do believe that, and there are some who are scholars who have a have have ought to know better, but have tried to develop a scholarly defense of that, and they're out there t- teaching that. But this group wasn't like that. But when Ron, Ron said he started talking to them about the fact that the New Testament was written in Greek and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and that when the New Testament Greek is then translated into English, certain Greek words can have a range of meanings and one translation may choose, translator may choose one word and another translator may choose another word. 
this was such a new concept to them that that throughout most of his three or four hour presentation that day, people kept coming back to that and asking questions about it. They just couldn't quite get their metal fingers around this whole translation uh, thing. It wasn't that they didn't believe it. They just never heard it before. So it was just such a brand new thought. Well, we're a little more well taught than that. And we understand that the Bible was originally written in, in, in Greek in the New Testament. The Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew with a few passages in Ezra uh, and Daniel written in Aramaic, but for the most part it's written in Hebrew. And that inerrancy only applies to those original manuscripts, which we don't have anymore. Now, the those who wish to attack the credibility of Christianity uh, attack that and say, well, if you don't have the original documents, then how do you know that, that you have them? And there is a uh, <clears throat> scholar who's a very winsome, has a very winsome personality, has a very bright, humorous uh, presence uh, on stage, and has written uh, several books that have made the New York Times bestseller list. And for someone who is a New Testament scholar who dabbles around in all of the technicalities of textual criticism to write anything that the New York Times is even aware of says something, and of course he's we're in the devil's world, and he writes and, uh, and attacks, and he always t- titles his books with these inflammatory uh, titles, How the Disciples Change the Words of Jesus. And uh, when you really pin him, pin him down, he, he will back off from the implications of that, but nevertheless, just the titles uh, tell people, people pick up the idea, oh yeah, well, there's another scholar saying that the disciples changed the words, uh, changed the words of, of Jesus. And so there's this, these beliefs out there, and they get a lot of uh, credibility when you read, when you read uh, or watch uh, Discovery Channel or some of these shows, and then they get popularized in, in films like... Uh, like the Da Vinci Code, and so people just believe what they hear in, in these this type of media, and then you sit down uh, over coffee with them, and they start hitting you with some of these questions like, well, h- how, how do you know there aren't errors? What about this? What about that? There, there are contradictions in the Bible, so we need to be able to answer those kinds of questions. Well, inspiration <clears throat> is the belief that God, the Holy Spirit, as the agent of inspiration, so supernaturally directed, guided, supervised, superintended the human writers of Scripture, that without waving, that means he didn't violate their individual personality. It's not dictation. Now, there are some passages of Scripture that are dictated. Aspects of the Mosaic Law, a few other places, are direct dictation, but most of it's not. Uh, That the Holy Spirit did not override or replace or shut down their individual personality so that their own human style, vocabulary, personality, personal feelings all come across through the text. So you can read in the original language uh, Peter's epistles or John's epistles or Paul's epistles, and you get a real sense of who they were. You understand the distinctions in their personality and their writing styles and their vocabulary. And so the Holy Spirit doesn't override any of that. But nevertheless, God, who is so great, our sovereign God is so powerful that he's able to override or supervise their writing in such a way that what they write is exactly what he intends without violating their personality so that what they write is without error in the original, and the scholars use the term autograph, which means the original writings. Now, we don't have the original writings, but we, uh, in many cases, we don't even have, we don't have copies of the original writings, and Bart Ehrman always goes through this little uh, uh, tirade thing, well, we don't have the copy of the copies of the original writings. We don't even have the copies of 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 the original writings. We have a couple hundred years between the original writings and the copies that we have. How do you know they didn't change a lot of stuff? And so this all, you know, this befuddles people who have never thought about this or never been taught very well. And the answer is that we may not have full copies of the New Testament that go back within that 200-year period, but we do have a number of fragments of uh, different uh, manuscripts that go back within that period of time. But we also have numerous quotations and citations 
and early church fathers going back to Clement of Rome who uh, wrote during the apostolic period and that they quoted scripture uh, again and again and again and in all of these particular writings plus um, in various uh, lectionaries this is a scrap of paper where they wrote the scripture reading down for that particular service we have uh, thousands and thousands of these lectionaries that were uh, read in, in the in public in the service. So we they go back to within this 200-year period, and we can compare that, and things didn't change. So we can have a tremendous level of confidence that even though we don't have the original, we can reconstruct the original by comparing manuscripts. And Dan Wallace, who's a uh, professor at Dallas Seminary, who's a classmate of mine and is just brilliant in this particular field. His theology is suspect, I believe, in other areas, so I want to warn you about that. But in this area, he's generally pretty good, even though there are times that he makes statements that I, I kind of wince over. But he's generally very good in, in these kinds of things, and he does a little thing that he wrote called The Gospel According to, P, to a Snoopy. And what he does is he'll he'll do this in a in a in a classroom or in a church where he's talking about uh, how we got the Bible, the transmission, of the text, and he will read this out loud to all these untrained scribes and copyists that are sitting in the audience, and then he will destroy his original so that all you have is what these untrained, unlearned uh, uh, individual laymen out in the few have written down, and yet by comparing what they have, uh, they've pretty much gotten almost everything right. There are a few errors. There's some spelling errors, word order errors, things of that nature, same kind of thing we have with the New Testament. But most of it is just spot on. It is, it is accurate, and you can compare these documents where there are discrepancies. You can reconstruct the original with with tremendous confidence. And Dan's been doing this for 25 or 30 years, and so he has a lot of, of empirical data to support the fact that, that, that the transmission of the text, even by untrained amateur copyists, which is what Bart Ehrman claims you had in the second century, uh, even with untrained, unprofessional copyists, they still had such a high view, of, would have had such a high view of the text and what they were doing, that they would have passed it on accurately. And so uh, we believe that God the Holy Spirit uh, supervised the writers of Scripture so that without overriding or waving or setting aside or putting on hold their individual intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style, personality, personal feelings, or any other factor, the complete and coherent message of God was re given to mankind and recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture, the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. Now, that pretty much covers the whole range of the doctrine. John 10.35, Matthew 5.18, 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter 1.21, 1 Corinthians 2.14-16 are just some of the passages that support uh, this particular view. Now, inerrancy is a word that was coined in the mid-20th century because what you used to be able to say and mean in the 19th century that you believe the Bible was the Word of God, later you had to say that you believed the Bible was the infallible Word of God, then the, uh, you believed that the Bible was the infallible, verbally, plenarily inspired Word of God, and then you had to say you believed the, that the Bible was the authoritative, inerrant, infallible, uh, inspired, plenary, verbally inspired Word of God. You had to add all of that just to say what people meant a couple hundred years ago, that you believe the Bible is the Word of God. But there's always people who come along and try to find wiggle room so they don't have to really believe that everything that's written down in the text is from God. The word inerrancy was coined to emphasize the fact that in the original writings there are no errors. Uh, that we can recover the wordings of those early manuscripts and that they're all from, free from any falsehood, fraud, or deceit. So whenever the Bible speaks of geography, when it speaks of anything that it addresses, geography, agriculture, uh, when it speaks of uh, weather, when it speaks of um, 
anything empirical that, uh, in terms of observing the creation or what we would call today science, it is without error. Now, there are a lot of challenges that are made on, on this basis, but usually what happens is we discover that, that we don't know enough information, not the Scripture, but whatever uh, the claim is. For example, a very famous uh, claim was back in up until 1927. The claim was made that, that there was no ancient literature that ever mentioned the Hittites. The Hittites didn't exist. This is just some fable people the Bible made up. See, the Bible is not true. And then in 1927, a place called Bogazkoy in Turkey, they discovered the capital of the Hittite Empire. Oh, my, the Bible was right after all. And even though there are many things in the Bible that, w- that are not de- able, we're not able to demonstrate or validate through uh, archaeology, there's no uh, extra-biblical mention of any of the major characters uh, until recently. Now, and recently, a couple of stela have been discovered, uh, that mentioned the house of David, so now that's been validated. There's some new discoveries that I'll be learning about when I go to Israel next month uh, in the new excavations between the old city of David and the southern uh, steps to the temple, and I understand that there are many remarkable things that have been discovered there from the first temple period that uh, validate many of the things that are said in Scripture about that period of time and mention a few people that are mentioned in Scripture, such as Hezekiah uh, and, and, and a few others. And so archaeology substantiates, basically, that the kinds of things that the Bible said happened in the period of time that the Bible says they happened uh, was pretty typical of what went on during that that time in history. But there's always new discoveries. There's always people who try to come along and, and um, attack uh, the scripture, they're basically skeptical. People like Bart Ehrman look at a glass that's half full and they say, it's not only half empty, it's leaky. And then there are others who are, are Christians who come from a viewpoint of, uh, of the scripture. They say, well, the glass is half full and God's filling it up because we trust in God and trust in his word. Now, Acts 7 has several places in it where we're under attack. But the reason I wanted to review the, in, the inerrancy is because this is stating that in the original autographs that the the writers of Scripture are recording exactly what happened. Now, that means that at the very least, let's say Stephen makes mistakes in what he said. At the very least, Luke is just accurately recording what Stephen said. Stephen's speech here is not of the same order as Paul writing uh, an epistle to the Ephesians or David writing the Psalms. It is uh, Stephen standing up before the Sanhedrin giving an oral defense of of his uh, position and indicting them on the basis of Old Testament history. So what he, he says could contain errors, but that's not what we're claiming is inspired. What's inspired is Luke's recording of Stephen's message. So at the very least, if, and that's a big if, there are errors in Stephen's message, then Luke has just faithfully recorded those. Satan tells a lie. The writers of Scripture faithfully record the lie, exactly as it is. Uh, The inerrancy of Scripture doesn't say that there are no lies in the Scripture. There are lies recorded in the Scripture, but they're accurately recorded by the writers of Scripture as lies. So inerrancy doesn't mean that everything that necessarily that everything Stephen said is accurate, but it does claim that Luke accurately records without error exactly what Stephen said. But I believe, and most conservatives believe, that there really aren't any errors if we investigate a little thoroughly and we don't just come from a skeptical vantage point and claim that, that well, because the Bible is just by virtue of my definition, a human book about religious experience, then I expect errors, so I'm going to find errors. We come to the text saying that, well, there seems to be a lot of evidence that this is revealed by God supernaturally. And so when we look at it, even though there may appear on the surface to be a contradiction here or there, let's do a little more investigation and study and perhaps 
what, what appears to be a contradiction will go away with a little further understanding of perhaps the original language or perhaps the context or some things of that nature. So the first, the first contradiction that's usually brought up as a problem is found in uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 6. Acts chapter 7, verse 6. And in Acts 7, 6, uh, we're in the first section of Stephen's defense when he is rehearsing the history of God's call of Abraham. And so when uh, he comes down to verse uh, verse 6, as he's talking about the promise that God made to Abraham and the covenant that God established with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, uh, we read in verse 7 in, that in the midst of that covenant that God made in Genesis chapter 15, God said, uh, and the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God, and after that they shall come out and serve me uh, in this place. Uh, excuse me, I said verse 6, I read verse 7. Got to fix those bifocals. Um, Acts 7, 6, but God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. Now, what happens is that critics will come and say, they'll, they go to Exodus 12:40 or Galatians 3:17. Both of those verses state that uh, the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt for 430 years. Ah, Stephen's wrong. Well, not necessarily. In Genesis 15:13, God said to Avram, "Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years." So. Stephen's not necessarily quoting. He doesn't say, well, over in Exodus 12.40 it says this. He's not citing a specific passage. He is simply, for one thing, he is summarizing a lot of material here. He's not giving a point-by-point, word-for-word, exegetical analysis of God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. He's just summarizing what he said. And in Genesis 15, God does say, and God summarizes, uses a, rounds the number to 400 years. And that's perfectly fine to have a round number. Nobody's, nobody's saying in the text that they will afflict them exactly, precisely 400 years, each year consisting of 365 and a quarter days. Okay, it's just a, it's just a round number. So, Stephen is citing or quoting from or remembering or summarizing from Genesis chapter 15, 13. There's not a discrepancy there. Uh, he's not quoting from Genesis 12, 40. Now, uh, Paul over in Galatians 3, 17 is, I think, quoting from Genesis 12, 40. But that's not the verse that, that Stephen's going to. Now, if we look at the date of the Exodus... And the way you arrive at the date of the Exodus is by looking at the date of the uh, of the dedication of the temple, which was about uh, 376 B.C., and it says in the text that uh, it was uh, uh, 350 years before that or so, or 370 years before that, that, um, uh, that they came uh, out of Egypt. And so you have a precise number there based on... Uh, based on the uh, uh, second, second Kings passage related to the dedication of the, uh, or the first Kings passage re- related to the dedication of the, of the uh, temple. And that would place the day of the Exodus at 1446 B.C. If you add 400 years to that, remember we're working backwards in B.C. time, then that puts us at 1886 B.C. Well, generally, Abraham's dates are uh, somewhere around 2050 to 2100. There's a lot of differences, even among conservative evangelicals, on the precision of these dates. So this 400-year period doesn't actually take us all the way back to Abraham. It's really focusing on the period of time uh, wherein the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, not the period of time that they were in Egypt. Remember, they came into Egypt when uh, Jacob uh, brought the uh, brothers to Joseph and their families uh, to 
to Egypt, and he brought 70 or 75 with him. That'll be the next, uh, the next problem. So all this is talking about is that for roughly this 400-year period, which we know was more precisely 430 years, but it's not an error in the text. Uh, it is an accurate uh, recording of what Stephen said, and Stephen is accurately reciting what's in Genesis chapter 15. Now, the next error people go to is in uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 14. In Acts 7, verse 14, we read then, uh, and by this time, uh, Stephen has jumped from Abraham to Joseph. And he goes to Joseph and he says, uh, verse 14, Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. Now, in Genesis 46, 27, we read, And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two persons, and that would be Manasseh and Ephraim, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim, uh, were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob, who went to Egypt, were 70. Ah, we have a contradiction. Well, first of all, it's not a contradiction. It could just be a summary or... Perhaps Stephen is quoting from a popular understanding of the number, but it doesn't have to be that way. We have a little more evidence to back this up, um, these 75 people. First of all, the Masoretic text of Exodus 1.5 states that there were 70. But when you do a little further analysis, you realize that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament from Hebrew into, into Greek because by uh, roughly 200 B.C. the Jews couldn't, uh, in Alexandria, Egypt, they're out in the diaspora and they can't speak Hebrew anymore, read Hebrew anymore, and so they needed to have the uh, scriptures transla- translated into their own language, and so they... Uh, had it translated into Greek. The legend is that 70 rabbis in 70 days translated the Torah, the the Pentateuch. And so that's why it's called the Septuagint, the 70 who did the translation. Now, in Genesis 46.27 and in Exodus 1.5, the Septuagint says that there were 75, not 70. And we often find in certain places that the Septuagint has a different number than the Masoretic text. But this, maybe the scribe who wrote this, added up the numbers a little differently. Because if you add um, the son and grandson of Manasseh and the two sons and grandson of Ephraim who were there, which are not included in the number that reaches 70, then if you add those five, then you reach 75. So the Septuagint used a different way of accounting whoever did that translation. Now, this gets into some really interesting stuff about the transmission of the text. The Masoretic text came into existence and formalized in the canon around around 900 A.D. The Masoretes were a school or clan of scribes that had taken the responsibility of preserving and transmitting the text over the period of uh, several centuries and making sure that the text was accurate. And in the process of doing that, they added certain, um, certain markings that indicated vowels because originally Hebrew has no vowels. And so you just look at consonants. Now, some people think, well, how do you know what a word is? Well, it's pretty easy. If you were to take the Declaration of Independence and take all the vowels out, uh, I would guess that everyone in this room could easily read the Declaration of Independence without stumbling over a single word. You've figured it out because you know English so well and you understand what the parts of speech should be there and things like that. Now, Hebrew doesn't have as much vocabulary as English does, so it does get a little dicey in places because without certain vowels that tell you the difference between, let's say, a pl, which is an intensive stem, and the hifil, which is a causative stem, you might not pick it out other than the fact that the hifil has a hay at the beginning, which gives you a clue. But when you get into some of the more difficult forms within the paradigm 
uh, there's a lot of similarity. There may be just a vowel shift difference. Uh, for example, the other morning, here's one. The other morning when I did the uh, Seder, and you come and you read through any Haggadah, which is the book that goes through the whole story of the Exodus and all the order for the Seder dinner. Uh, when you get to the uh, first part, that initial prayer, it is called the Kaddish, K-A-D-D-I-S-H. This is uh, uh, usually I see it uh, transliterated with a Q because it's from the Hebrew word Kadosh. The Kadosh is the uh, verb form which means uh, to be separate, to be holy, to be sanctified. That's that whole word group, Kadosh. So, so when you have this prayer, it's a prayer of sanctification, so it's called the Kaddish. But when you get into a description of it in any of these books, then they will say, when you say the Kiddush, what happened? It's called the Kaddish, but when you say the prayer, it's called the Kiddush. See, there's a vowel shift. But if you're just writing consonants, you don't have a way to indicate that vowel shift. So is it Kaddish here or Kiddush? That could make a difference if you're trying to exegete a text as to which word you're using. So the Masoretes put these these vowel markings in there. Now, early on in the development of Hebrew, sometime around the first century, they started with an early form of uh, vowel points where they used a few consonants like the Vav and the Yod and uh, a couple of others to indicate a vowel. These were consonants who were doing double duty. Sometimes in English, the Y can be a vowel or it can be a consonant. So we have something similar that you can relate to. So you have, um, they they took these these two or three different vowels and they made them do double duty as vowels and they called it, the Latin word was a matrilectionis, a mother of letters. Now, what's interesting about that, and this is, gets into some real technical, trivial stuff, but this is what's interesting, is that when you look at the Mas- Masoretic, or you look at the text of the Dead Sea Scrolls for the Torah, for the first five books of Moses, there are more vowels that have been inserted into that text than what you have in the text of the Mas- Masoretic text. What does that tell you? Well, I learned this. I'm not always that bright on these kinds of technicalities in Hebrew. I learned this from uh, Dr. Lawrence Schiffman, who's one of the foremost scholars on the Dead Sea Scrolls, who was invited by the um, uh, Temple of Young Israel here in Houston to give them a guided tour through a Dead Sea Scroll exhibit down at the uh, uh, Museum of Natural History almost, uh, it would have been seven years ago, not long after I came down here, moved down to pastor the church, Remember, some of you may have st- may have been around at that point. We took a group and we went down to the museum to see that on a Sunday morning. We thought all the Christians are going to be in church. We meet on Sunday night, so you know we'll have an easy go of it. Well, I didn't think about all the Jews that would be down there, and this synagogue had invited and paid for uh, Lawrence Schiffman to come down from New York University, where he teaches, where he is teaches uh, Hebrew and Old Testament languages, and he's giving them a guided tour. And Connie was standing next to me, and we all bought our little headsets, and we're listening to the little lectures. And all of a sudden, Connie starts elbowing me, and I'm like, go away. I'm trying to listen. She said, take your headset off. Listen to this guy. He knows more. And next thing, all of us had folded in with the Jewish uh, synagogue, and we're listening to him. And he had worked with Randy Price on some things, and so I began to ask him some questions. And uh, he knew, realized I knew something and so he would give me little side lectures as we walked from exhibit to exhibit. And one of the little things he pointed out to me was, see, there are more vowel points in the, in the Dead Sea Scroll uh, text of the Torah than in the Masri text. The, the, the more recent a document is, the more vowel points it has. So that means that the original of the Pentateuch for the Masoretic text is older than the Pentateuch that they, that they found at the Dead Sea. Interesting little tidbit. But those kinds of things are really important when you start dealing with trusting the text, that it hasn't changed through the hundreds and thousands of years of transmission. 
And so there are discrepancies sometimes between some of these really ancient sources like the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint and the Masoretic Text, and that's why you have some of these differences. The Septuagint will have one thing, and the sometimes other older uh, manuscripts that we have that are translations are, are not necessarily influenced by, by the uh, Septuagint. Maybe they're influenced by something else, but maybe they have a, reflect a more accurate tradition at that point than the Masoretic text, and that's part of Old Testament textual criticism. And so what's happening here is that that um, Stephen, who is a Hellenistic Jew, is quoting from the Bible that he was most familiar with, which is what? Hello, the Septuagint, not the Hebrew text. And so that's what he's quoting from, and the Hebrew and the Septuagint isn't doesn't have some wild number there. It's just including five people in the number that weren't included in the count uh, given in the Masoretic text. Now, the next discrepancy is in Acts 7.16. This is another uh, little more interesting one. Uh, in Acts 7.16, as uh, Stephen is uh, just summarizing the whole movement of the family of Jacob, in verse 14 he said, Then Joseph sent, called his father Jacob, all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. Now, that summarized about four chapters in Genesis. Okay? He's summarizing. He's just hitting the high points. He's not trying to hit every little detail. Then he comes to verse 16, he says, And they were carried back to Shechem. Who was carried back? See, verse 15 says, So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died. He and who else? Our fathers. Who's that? Who's that? Well, that'd be Joseph and others. We're not told about others in the Exodus. We're told that they took... They, they were told at the end of Genesis that when Jacob died, they took him back, but where did they bury him? They buried him in Hebron, not at Shechem. They buried him in Hebron at the cave of Machpelah, which Abraham had bought uh, from uh, the Hittites to bury Sarah, and then he was buried there and Isaac, and this is the cave of the patriarchs, uh, the burial place which you can visit. In fact, they had a small fire there a couple of days ago uh, in Israel. But when they said and they were carried back to Shechem, the fathers would, occur, would include Joseph. And Joseph was taken back at the time of the Exodus, and Joseph was buried in Shechem. Now, this is also very interesting because as you, as you look at this uh, text in 716, it says, They were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Now, wait a minute. Abraham didn't buy anything in Shechem. He, he bought the cave of Machpelah. He didn't buy anything up in Shechem. What, Jacob bought land in Shechem from uh, Hamor, the father of Shechem. Shechem was his son. Remember, he was the one who raped Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and then uh, Levi... Uh, Levi and I think it was Levi and Reuben decided that they would get revenge on the uh, inhabitants of Shechem. So they said, well, you know, you can, you can marry our sister, but, but all the men in Shechem have to get circumcised first. And so um, they kind of balked at that, but finally they relented and said, okay, we'll all get circumcised. And so they all got circumcised, and while they're all in their post-operative trauma, then uh, Reuben and Levi, I think it was Reuben, I may be mistaken there, but it was Levi for sure, and one of the other brothers came in, and they, they massacred every male in uh, Shechem because they had violated their sister. So it was an act of revenge. They were acting just as pagan as the, the Canaanites. So Shechem was a city that had a lot of uh, significance in the history of Israel. Abraham had built an altar there. Jacob, uh, Jacob had built an altar there. Uh, it was a place where God had uh, reiterated his promise to Abraham to give him the land. There were a lot of things that happened in Shechem. But Shechem is also the capital of Samaria. 
And Samaria is the home of those half-breeds that had been, uh, the Gentiles had been resettled there by the Assyrians in the, in the period after the uh, destruction of, of, uh, of the northern kingdom of Israel. And they were really enemies. They were hostile to the Jews. There was a status of animosity. It wasn't just that they didn't like each other or that there was extreme prejudice. They hated each other. And so uh, Shechem is right uh, in, in north in Samaria, and it's considered a capital of Samaria. Well, if you look at where Luke is going in Acts 8, the gospel is getting ready to go to Samaria. And so this is a little bit of a foreshadowing there. But what is uh, going on here is that he's putting Abraham for his grandson, Jacob, Now, is this unusual or is this an error? Well, it's not an error. This is typical in Hebrew literature. Where would you go in the Bible to to show that that this kind of thing is is typical? You go over to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. Well, no, he didn't. Levi lived 600 years after Melchizedek. Levi... Uh, or, no, excuse me, Levi lived 300, or about 200 years after Melchizedek. Levi is a great-grandson of Abraham, but he's not alive when the events of Genesis chapter 14 takes place. Uh, Abraham is, and Abraham is the one who paid tithes, but the, the writer of Hebrews says Levi paid tithes, as it were, showing that uh, in this connection, that, Melch- uh, that, that Abraham was considered, seen as an inferior to Melchizedek, and so if Abraham, the great-grandfather, was inferior to Melchizedek, so was Levi. But the grandson is placed there, uh, uh, and he wasn't even alive yet. And so this kind of thing where the head of the clan, Abraham, would be put in the place of his descendant. So this is... Uh, not atypical of of Hebrew writing. And the reason they would do something like that would be to make a point of connection. And so that's what Stephen is doing here is connecting that. He's not saying Abraham was the one who bought that. He knew better. He's not misspeaking, but he's saying that because this is a descendant of Abraham and he's uh, tracing this back to show the interconnectedness of the people. Now, then there's another interesting situation that comes up a little later on. Uh, it's not a textual problem. This is in Acts 7.37, and this is a quotation of a messianic prophecy. And in the next section, that uh, next person that, that Stephen focuses on is Moses. And Moses uh, is, uh, Moses' life is rehearsed here, and he goes to a prophecy from Moses, a messianic prophecy in verse 37. And Stephen says, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. Now remember in the course of his argument, his indictment, he has shown that, that Joseph showed up to his brothers the first time. They didn't recognize him. There was no blessing from him. The second time they recognize him. Same thing with Moses. Moses was not recognized as the deliverer of the people the first time they saw him. It took the second uh, appearance before they discovered him. Jesus shows up the first time and they don't recognize him as the deliverer. And the implication is he's going to have to come back a second time before you recognize him as the deliverer. But he's starting to build his case here that Moses had this prophecy about a prophet, and that is fulfilled in Jesus. Now, it may surprise you, uh, some of you, some of you remember, and you've heard me teach on this before, it may surprise you that there are many, many evangelicals today. In fact, it's almost become the, the new avant-garde position among evangelicals to try to make the claim that there were no real messianic prophecies uh, in the Old Testament. Who knew? It was just a surprise that Jesus showed up. This is uh, not the traditional Protestant view, although there were some early Protestants influenced by some Jewish rabbis because they went to the Jewish rabbis to study Hebrew and picked up some bad theology. 
Um, and incidentally, Jewish rabbis, as I pointed out in my study on the Messiah a couple of years ago, Jewish rabbis didn't get to the point where they could argue that these weren't messianic prophecies for a thousand years after Christ. But some of those that did get rid of the messianic prophecies theologically from the Old Testament uh, had a negative influence on a few Protestants. So that strain has always been with us. But most Protestants have understood uh, there to be specific direct prophecies in the Old Testament related to the Messiah, and this is one of them. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. That's a key phrase. Like me, from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. He goes on to say, According to all you desire to the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to him, What they have spoken is good. And then verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. Note this, he said, And will put my words in his mouth. That indicates intimacy. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Well, There are among the some of those who deny true literal messianic prophecies, there are those who claim that this really doesn't relate to the Messiah at all. So the first view uh, that you see on a passage like this is the non-messianic view. Among the the, uh, Jewish rabbis or Barbanel uh, said this was Jeremiah. Um, I got a couple of typos in there. Ibn Ezra said that it was Joshua. But it can't be Jeremiah because Jeremiah is not a prophet like Moses. A prophet like Moses, Moses was a deliverer. Moses was a legislator. Moses was an executive. Moses was a mediator. Jeremiah is none of those things. Moses' ministry is the deliverance of the people. Jeremiah's ministry is to bring ju- announce judgment upon the people. Jeremiah is not like Moses. Um, Joshua is not like Moses either. In fact, if you look at the last couple of verses in in Deuteronomy, the final editor of Deuteronomy, who probably wrote those last four verses after the return from the exile, makes a, a very strong statement in the Hebrew that there never has been a, a prophet like Moses with whom God spoke face to face. So it can't be Joshua. Three verses earlier, it introduces Joshua as the uh, as the successor to Moses, but but then after the after the exile, when this final editor is putting Deuteronomy together, uh, makes this includes these last three or four verses and says there never has been to this day. And the way he expresses it in Hebrew is is uh, emphatic. There never has been since Moses a prophet like Moses. Point. This has never been fulfilled, and so. Um, We're still looking for the Messiah. There's a collective non-Messianic view. This is the idea they're just talking about all the prophets, and that doesn't work because it's a singular prophet, and it's not talking about the office of prophet. It's talking about a specific prophet. There are some that try to make this a collective Messianic view. That doesn't work either for pretty much the same reason. And then there's the view that this is a talking about this, the Messiah. This is the specific individual uh, Messianic view. Uh, this is supported uh, for a number of reasons in the grammar of the text and the context of the text. For example, the wider context of Deuteronomy makes it very fitting for Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19 to refer to the Messiah as the head of all of the offices and authorities spoken of in the surrounding passages. And Deuteronomy 18 is talking about uh, the leadership in Israel, the role, the responsibilities of the king and, and the priests and other, other leaders. So it makes sense that this would refer to the Messiah as the ultimate authority uh, in Israel. Uh, the most immediate context is uh, a contrast between the... Um, between Moses, I mean, between the prophet like Moses and those false prophets who dabbled in pagan divination. Uh, they didn't speak the word of God like Moses did. So there's a discussion of false prophets in uh, 1820 to 22, uh, which is in contrast with what they had uh, have, have before. I'm going to turn back to Deuteronomy quickly to 
uh, read this uh, to you. In Deuteronomy 18, uh, 20 to 22, we read, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, this is the false prophet. This is the only time you have the uh, definite article show up in the Hebrew, but it's talking about the specific case study of a, a specific prophet, the prophet who speaks falsely. Uh, which I have not commanded to speak, or speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So it's giving the um, uh, the penalty for that. So that that also supports the fact that he's talking about a specific uh, specific Messiah. So the individual Messiah view, messianic view is is uh, supported by the fact that the word navi for prophet is in the singular. Uh, the, the prophet to, to come is compared to a singular individual, Moses. Uh, third, in the history of the Old Testament, no ordinary prophet was legislative, priestly, executive, and also served as a mediator between the people and God. There's been no one like that other than Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, other Pentateuchal messianic passages also give a broader context, context for this to be a messianic prophecy in passages such as Numbers 12, um, uh, 6 through 8, on down into uh, that chapter. This is uh, the chapter which speaks about uh, God saying, I, with, with Moses alone have I spoken face to face. It shows an intimacy that God had with Moses and Moses alone in contrast to all of the other prophets. So when you come to the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 34.10, the final editor states, but since then, since then there has not arisen, there's never been a prophet in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. See, that goes back to that Numbers 11 uh, passage. And all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants and in all his land, and by all that mighty power and all the great care which Moses performed in the sight of Israel. He's saying it's never happened to that date. And most scholars would agree, conservative evangelical scholars, that the final form of Deuteronomy comes right at near the end of the uh, closing of the canon in the Old Testament after the return of the exile. And just one last thing I wanted to point out. In uh, Acts 7, 42 and 43, there is a quotation from Amos 5, 25 to 27. There seems to be a little bit of a difference in the Acts 7 passage, I've underlined the two false gods that are mentioned. Uh, Moloch, who is the god of the, uh, of the uh, Midianites, uh, he was a false god that they worshipped, that they had child sacrifice to, and also you have the name uh, there of Remphan. And Remphan is kind of a... Uh, uh, Pagan deity mentioned. It's also translated romp in the New American Standard. And this was also a false god. Some translators have looked at there's some odd things going on in the Hebrew text here. They've, you see the word kaiwan. This is translated in the, if you look down in 526, I didn't underline it. You also carried Sukuth, your king, and Chian. So some translations translated kaiwan, kiwan, kuin various things, and these are references to other false gods uh, in, in Assyria or Babylon. And so when it was brought over into the Septuagint, they sort of modernized the false gods uh, so that they were more recognizable. But that would come out of the, uh, uh, come out of the uh, Septuagint as well. So in essence, it is a uh, sort of a paraphrase. Stephen is sort of paraphrasing Acts 7, 42 and 43, uh, from Amos 5, 25 to 27, to show that in the ancient world, the Israelites had worshipped all of these different idols. And that's his point. His point is not trying to give a precise uh, quotation from memory. See how good I did at Bible memory school. He is, he is uh, giving a paraphrase of Acts 5, and he is focusing on the most well-known gods that he's inserting into the text, to emphasize the fact that the Jews in the Old Testament had constantly violated uh, the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments by getting involved uh, with idolatry, as Jeremiah 32 and 2 Kings 23.10 also support. So that 
brings together some of the details of uh, Acts 7. Next time what I want to do is to give another summary. We've reached the end of the first section in Acts, and so we want to just go back and just kind of recover our territory so that we can get that locked into our mind as to the flow of, of Luke's thought, major doctrines that are covered, and then we will get into the next section. I'll do an overview also the next section, which goes from Acts 8. And the first person mentioned in Acts 8.1 is Saul, who becomes uh, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 12, all of a sudden we've moved from the situation we have now of a Jewish church that's in Jerusalem primarily to a church that is spreading out throughout the eastern Mediterranean and Gentiles have been fully welcomed in uh, to the to the church, and a shift is taking place. Uh, the center of gravity is shifting from Jerusalem to Antioch, from Peter to Paul, and from the Jews to the Gentiles. So these next uh, four or five chapters give us that full transition. When we come out of that centerpiece, we're into Acts uh, 13 and the, Paul's first missionary journey when we see the gospel going full bore to the Gentiles. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to uh, focus on these details, to be reminded that there are clear answers to challenges to the accuracy of the text of Scripture and that we can have complete confidence in your word that you have overseen its uh, writing and its transmission and that we can be confident that we have your word. Father, we pray that uh, <clears throat> we might be faithful to you, for that is the ultimate issue here in, in uh, Stephen's challenge to the Jews, is that they really weren't faithful. They just had a facade of faithfulness. And yet we need to be faithful. We need to, uh, as the Old Testament uh, teaches, we need to uh, learn to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.